the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verse 43. And immediately, while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And our subject is arresting the Lord of all. This is an astonishing day when Christ, the eternal Son of God, permitted himself in apparent weakness to be taken and arrested and then subsequently taken to trial and to execution. And we begin the passage with this 43rd verse. One of the twelve, while he yet spake cometh Judas, one of the twelve. What a significant phrase. Judas, one of the twelve, one of those who had been under the instruction of the Lord for some three years, one of those who had witnessed all the compassionate miracles, save a few. One of those who had been close up, the front row, as you would say, and had seen the mighty power of the Lord, one at a word he would heal, or to touch as he chose. One of the twelve who had seen him read the thoughts of the disciples, who'd heard the teaching of the Lord, who spoke like no other man, amazing things, his exposition of the scriptures, his teaching, who'd heard constantly the repeated message of repentance and remission of sin, heard about the grace of God, that salvation that forgiveness comes not through works, not through any religious performances, not through a lifetime of study and application, but as a free gift from God given instantly and transforming the life. He'd heard all this, and yet one of the twelve He'd passed muster among the other eleven. They all thought him to be genuine. Not the Lord, of course. He knew all along what would be in his heart. There cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude. A great multitude? Well, he had the temple police, the Levites. He had... Some of the chief priests, remember that in those days there was not just one chief priest, there was a primary chief priest acting for the year, but there were others also in the family of chief priests and they took turns in rotation in a measure and they were all known as chief priests. Some of them... Uh, The rest of the clergy, the Jewish clergy of the time, the uh, scribes and the Pharisees and the elders of the people, and in addition, 
we're told, in Luke, a cohort of soldiers, presumably, from the fortress Antonio, adjacent to the temple. That number is about 600. One doubts if they were all on this particular task to arrest the Lord. There would have been some left on duty, surely in the city and in the fortress. Maybe there were 300, 400 of the 600, enough for it to be described as a great multitude, absolutely intimidating. So many, the soldiers with swords, the Levite priests, maybe 40, 50 of them, with clubs, staves. And then the high priests and the clerical party sent from, elsewhere it says that there were chief priests, scribes and Pharisees in the band, but they were sent from the chief priests. It was their authority, the authority of the Sanhedrin council, the leaders of the people. It was the clergy who did not believe in him. It was the clergy who ordered his arrest. It was the clergy who rigged the whole thing so that he would be found guilty of blasphemy and put to death. Of course, Christ could have prevented it at any moment. He prevented it on numerous occasions up to this point because the time was not ready according to the plan of God. But now he allows it to take place. And verse 44, he that betrayed him, Judas, Mark seems reluctant to name him unless it's absolutely necessary, had given them a token, a sign, saying, whomsoever I shall kiss, the same is he. Take him and lead him away safely. Why the chief priests did not necessarily know where Christ withdrew himself to after preaching in Jerusalem in the evenings of this last week. But Judas knew, and he would take them to that little garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives, clearly owned by one who was a follower of Christ, not one of the twelve, not a close disciple, but the owner of that garden who possibly lived nearby, and the garden had olives, it was an olive grove, and there would have been a structure there to press the olives, either a simple building or a cave in the hillside which had been adapted to the purpose and contained the press. But the owner was sympathetic, a follower, And there Christ would take the disciples. Judas knew. He knew exactly the roots of the place. And he took this great hostile crowd of soldiers, clergy and temple police to that very spot. He had arranged the kiss. I would imagine everyone knows about that. And he would kiss and embrace Christ. And so he would indicate who was the one they were after. What Judas didn't know, and we read about this in the Gospel of John, 
was that the moment this party entered the garden, Christ would step forward and say to them, Who are you seeking? And they would say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he would say, I am he. He didn't need Judas, actually. The Lord would step forward himself. But Judas led the party and he was by his side. And though it was no longer necessary, Christ has identified himself. Judas advanced to him and he utters these words. Twice he says, Master, Master, Rabbi, Rabbi, from the Hebrew. Teacher, teacher. Mark you, Judas has done this before. At the Last Supper, he called him teacher, whereas everyone else called Christ Lord. Judas no longer believed that. He no longer believed he was divine. He was Lord. He was falling already. But I want to say to you this, that Judas represents here perfectly a nominal believer. Oh, a nominal believer? Isn't he an outright enemy? No, that's not how he was. He was a follower of Christ. And he was one of the twelve inner circle disciples. But he was the one among the twelve who was actually a nominal believer. He believed in Christ to begin with, not as the spiritual saviour, but he believed in him as being from God and having divine power, and he would have believed in him as a political saviour, one who would rescue the country from the Romans when he revealed himself and his power. And as it became increasingly obvious, that wasn't what he was, that wasn't what was happening. He was allowing himself to be taken and arrested and humiliated. This was not the victorious political saviour of the kind that Judas expected. So he ceased to believe in him. But he was, for most of the time, a nominal believer. He professed Christ to be the Son of God. He stood with the other disciples. He was trusted enough as one of them by the other disciples for them to appoint him the treasurer of their money, the one who would handle their pooled resources as disciples of Christ. When Christ first said at the Last Supper, one of you will betray me, None of the disciples suspected Judas, not for a moment. They said, is it I? Is it I? Isn't that amazing? The nominal believer can pass. The nominal believer can be admitted to membership of the church. The nominal believer can convince many people that he has a sincere faith. But he's only notional, formal nominal as a believer. He hasn't actually been saved. He hasn't actually ever truly repented. He hasn't been illuminated and received a new understanding and that transformation of life 
which is conversion. He's not in a relationship with God. He doesn't walk with Christ and love him deeply and sincerely and seek to honour him. He hasn't come to hate his sin and long to please Christ. He isn't really changed. He isn't in the battle against sin. Here's a warning about the nominal believer. The nominal believer will ultimately fail and fall. And you see it in times of persecution. You see when it becomes unpopular, such as in our land, to be a believer in Christ, you see the nominal believers falling away in their masses. The Victorian age was the end of an age of blessing. Many people truly converted in all kinds of churches around the country. Protestant believing churches. But then it faded and the offspring of those believers were nominal believers, or many of them were. They were not personally and deeply saved. So the great fall away began from worship. They were the people who were the first to be convinced by Darwinism and later Freudianism and so on. The intellectual hostility to the Bible and to the Gospel. They were the people who fell for the movement for higher criticism and so on. They were the people who when the First World War came and all its terrors and horrors stopped ever going to church and the great fall away in the United Kingdom began. And from then on, it's been steep until the present day we're virtually an atheistic country. But the nominals ultimately fell. So they did with Judas. If you've never deeply found the Lord and really repented of sin and found a new life and transformation and found yourself walking with God and fighting against sin and doing all for his sake, you're a nominal and ultimately you'll fail if not before, at death, and when Christ comes again, you'll fail. That's the first warning of the passage. Judas, verse 44, he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, whomsoever I shall kiss, the same is he. Take him and lead him away safely. And he embraced Christ. Teacher, teacher, said in emotional tones as though pledging himself to him and the kiss, the sign of oneness and affection. There it is in verse 45. Kissed him, the son of man, we're told elsewhere, betrayest thou the son of man with a kiss? Have you never really found the Lord? But you move among Christians and you join in the conversation and you claim to love the Lord, but you're not his. You're not far short of Judas already. Betrayest thou the Son of Man? 
with a kiss. And verse 46, they, the soldiers and the temple police, laid their hands upon him. Well, dear friends, you put the Gospels together, you get a sense of the full violence of this operation. They seized him as violently and as roughly as they possibly could and took him, but they didn't bind him yet. Not immediately. Very soon they would. Because we read verse 47, one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. The Gospel of John amplifies. The Gospel of Matthew and Luke tell you just a little more. You learn between them all that it was Simon Peter who was carrying a sword. I wonder if other disciples were too. Very likely, because Luke tells us that they all said at first, shall we smite with the sword? Plural, shall we smite with the sword? The immediate reaction of the disciples, shall we defend you? And Peter had got his out and drawn it and gone into the attack before he heard the reply. One of them that stood by, Simon Peter, smote a man, John identifies him, his name was Malchus, and he was a servant of the high priest, not Caiaphas, the acting high priest, but one of his family with a servant, other high priests would have been there, cut off his ear. And Christ says, we're told elsewhere, Suffer it thus far, suffer ye thus far, in our King James translations. The modern translations translate it quite differently. They say, no more of this. Christ says, no more of this, no more violence. But that's a very strange way to translate the passage. That's just a guess and an interpretation. What Christ actually said was, suffer ye so far, thus far. And the word suffer, translated suffer, in the Greek means permit, allow, allow this so far. And that's really how it should be translated. Suffer this, suffer ye, up to this point, so far. What does he mean? Well, it depends who Christ is talking to. If he's speaking to the, those who are making the arrest, the soldiers and the high priests, he seems to be telling them, well, permit what has happened. Allow what has happened to this point. Then, at a word, he heals the right ear of Malchus and restores it entirely. So he wasn't bound yet, because he can touch and he can say the word. And at that touch he can heal the ear. But it's as though he says to the arresting party, allow what has happened up till now, and then promptly he puts it right and restores the ear. 
or Christ is speaking to the disciples. And although he restores the ear, if he's speaking to them, it means something a little different. Permit everything that you've seen up to this point. Don't resist it. Permit it. Now that would make sense because Christ goes on to say, for so the scriptures have predicted that this would happen. And that I think is more likely that Christ was speaking to the disciples. Suffer, permit, allow all this to take place as it has up to this point. It's exactly what is going to happen according to the scriptures. But to say no more of this just mangles the passage and ignores the terms that are used in the Greek original. And the translators nowadays assume that it's just some kind of figure of speech and they can be free and easy in their translation. But the words actually were suffer all that you see happening. And Christ challenges the people and says unto them, verse 48, Are ye come out as against a thief? With swords and with staves, I was daily with you in the temple. You didn't take me. What's he doing? Well, Christ is just exposing their deceit. And uh, why arrest at the dead of night? Why arrest in these circumstances when the crowds are not here? Because this whole event, this whole arrest is filled with deceit and subtlety. It's something you have to do slyly. It's something you have to do dishonestly. You dare not arrest me publicly and openly. It's got to be done in this way. He's just convicting them and exposing them and their attitude in saying those words. I'm down to verse 50. They all forsook him and fled. But look, you have Judas, the nominal believer, and then you have the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, bitter sworn enemies, two distinct kinds of people represented there. But Judas becomes one of the sworn enemies in time. The hostility that was there at this place of arrest. And verse 50, they all, the disciples, forsook him and fled. They were true believers, but they were overwhelmed. This was terrifying to them. With Christ in that garden, the great crowd, I guess, but possibly two, three, four hundred soldiers, the Levite priests, fifty or so, the elders of the people, the scribes, the Pharisees, chief priests, all armed to the teeth. John tells us carrying torches and lanterns. We know it was a full moon that night, but still, torches and lanterns. What a crowd! What hope have we? 
And the disciples, unable to use the sword, which wouldn't have done them much good against so many, well, they were overcome with fear and they forsook him, left him and fled. And at that point, they bound Christ. Why did they take so many? Why such a large force to arrest one man? Well, first of all, they might have thought that there were many more than the twelve or eleven with him. That there were other followers there. That this would be a violent occasion. They misjudged Christ. He'd never been violent. There had never been any violence from him. Any words of violence. But nevertheless, from their own evil hearts, they feared lest there be a party there to defend him. But secondly, this must succeed. We've sent officers to take him on previous occasions and he's just walked from them and they couldn't touch him for some strange reason. They couldn't lay hands on him. He marshals some hypnotic power. They, they wouldn't have wanted to explain it spiritually. This time, we've got to make certain of it. We've got to send a great force. But also the size of the force reflects their hatred. They so hated Christ. They so wanted to take him and humiliate him and bring him down. And he was a miracle worker. He could heal people, whole crowds of people. What are these powers? In their hardness of heart, they didn't believe they were powers from God. They must have thought he had some power of magic, some tricks, some techniques which nobody could get to the bottom of. He may escape their clutches. So because he had some undoubted powers, they would send the largest force they possibly could. All these things, no doubt, came into it. And it terrified the disciples. But I want to home on to what the disciples said to him. Shall we smite? And Peter drew the sword and struck the right ear of Malchus, servant of the high priest. Now they were true believers, but here's something for us, a lesson for us. How were they going to solve their problem? Christ is being arrested. They are vastly outnumbered. Some of them evidently, beyond Peter, had weapons. The flesh speaks, and the flesh says, Lord, do you want us to fight? Do you want us to defend you? Do you want us to strike them down? The flesh speaks. Same with us. In so many difficult situations, trials, problems, persecutions of different types, even in soul winning, how shall we go about it? What shall we do? Beware of the voice of the flesh. Human solutions. The disciples, 11 of them, shall we smite them? It's the only thing we can think of. 
No violence, no smiting, no carnal, fleshly solution. You depend on prayer and the power of God for everything. And this is a lesson that rings down the ages. Obviously, in the Christian church, there will be no violence. There has been violence in church history. What does it tell you? Violence by Christians. Well, most of the time it tells you they were not really Christians. Like the Crusades. They were not Christians. Oh, they named the name of Christ. But they were not saved people. They were not people of the Bible. They were people of Catholic-style faith, works faith, nominal people, no true conversion. Because if they'd been true converts and truly the Lord's and truly men and women of the Bible, they would have known no violence. You can't extend the kingdom of God or defend the kingdom of God by violence. Only by love, by prayer, by the message of Calvary, by the winning of souls and the transformation of hearts. No violence from true Christians. That's the rule of Christ. Nor is there to be any violence in other forms because uh, there are forms of violence beyond physical violence. For instance, sometimes you get uh, even preachers using emotional violence, emotional manipulation, great screams and shouts. I've heard preachers who could scream their words in such a way it almost curdled the blood. It did something to you inside to hear these horrendous screeches of words, emotional manipulation, shout loudly. Of course, the preacher is bound to get excited sometimes because of his message. He wants to communicate. He wants to uh, enforce its power and value, but he mustn't engage in emotional manipulation. And you know, sometimes the old-fashioned evangelists used to get into this. And they would tell these heart-rending sob stories and then make an altar call. And people who were moved might run to the front to respond to the altar call and be assured they were saved. When maybe, maybe some were, but maybe they weren't. Maybe they hadn't come under conviction of sin. Maybe they weren't repenting of their sin. Maybe they weren't really yielding their life over to Christ. And they were not saved. But because they've walked to the front, they are assured by that act, by virtue of what they've done and their decision, they are saved. So the church is filled up with even more nominal believers who aren't really saved. So emotional manipulation can be used to bring people to affirm Christ, and they haven't really. You have to be careful with what we call apologetics. Powerful reasoning, which shows that maybe evolution is false and creation is true, 
or maybe in other sophisticated ways, shows that the way of thinking of the world is futile, and the Bible can be demonstrated to be infallible and remarkable and wonderful. So you convince people that the faith is reasonable and compelling. And sometimes people do this very effectively. And many people are convinced, and they become notional Christians in their minds, but they've never come under conviction of sin. The apologetic speaker did his job beautifully, but he didn't tell them about Calvary, and he didn't tell them about condemnation, and he didn't draw them to Christ for forgiveness and remission of sin and new life. So they weren't really saved. You can, violence can be intellectual violence, the assault of an intellectually powerful argument, or it can be emotional violence too. We don't use violence of any sort. Now, apologetics are useful. <clears throat> yes, they're useful. It may open eyes, make people begin to think that the things that they've always assumed have been proven, haven't been proven at all. The whole idea of the world and the cosmos coming about as the result of can be explained entirely rationally. No, they may be uh, helped to understand these things, but it won't save them without the gospel, without repentance and remission of sin. So this little word here, buried in the arrest of Christ, concerning put up your sword, no violence, no force, no human power to bring about conversions. No techniques. And isn't that what we see all around us? Even Bible-believing churches, full of techniques. Do it this way. Use drama. Bend the mind. Do, try this. Try that approach to knock them over. I remember one evangelist many years ago used to come to London and the advertisements on the hoardings would say, Choir of 6,000. What's that got to do with it? Oh, if you had a, have a choir of 30, that might move them. If you have a choir of 6,000, they're bound to be saved. Really? What's that got to do with it? And so on. No, it's the gospel. It's prayer. It's bringing people to con conviction of sin by the operation of the Spirit, doing things His way, the Word of God and prayer. Those are our only weapons, and that's all tied up with this here. No swords, no human ideas, no gimmicks, no human methods. But I've time is almost out, so... I want to come down a little further to the end of this passage. Verse 51. The disciples have fled. But there's one there who doesn't flee. And this is very interesting. This is only in the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, Luke, John do not have it. There followed him, followed Christ, a certain young man. What do you picture? Well, could be as young as 18, could be up to 
25 or 30, that's all within the compass of a young man as you have it in the New Testament Greek. There followed him a certain young man, 18 to 30, can't tell you, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. A word is used in the Greek which indicates the very kind of cloth that would be used for a funeral shroud. So it's a kind of heavy linen blanket or shroud. What's this? Well, the best guess is that this young man had gone to bed. He was asleep. When he heard the commotion of the soldiers, the hundreds of them, and the temple police and saw the lanterns and the torches and the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and he knew or guessed where they were heading and he drew over him such covering as he could in the haste of the moment and followed to see what would happen. Who was he? Well, the church fathers used to think it was Mark himself. And the reasoning for that was it's only in the Gospel of Mark. And the way it's narrated does not exactly prove the point, but it gives you the impression that there's an eyewitness account going on. So surely it's Mark, they used to say. But there are various things against that. However, it could have been Mark. Dare I say, C.H. Spurgeon thought it was Mark. And he preached a whole sermon on the young man Mark. And he took this as the starting point. And he made it a kind of character study. How Mark followed Christ and even when the disciples, the eleven loyal disciples, fled, young Mark stayed in the place of danger. Tremendous faith and allegiance. But then he buckled and ran too. And so Spurgeon's conclusion was that he start, a man who started well but gave up easily. A true Christian who started things with great enthusiasm and gave up easily. Well then that certainly happened with Mark later on when he was an assistant to the Apostle Paul on a missionary journey. And he deserted. He started well, but he gave up quickly. But then later in life, just a few years later, you know how he became the assistant of Peter. And he put right his wrongs. And he became loyal to the very end. And so we have the Gospel of Mark, which is really the Gospel of Peter. But Mark was his kind of secretary. Now Spurgeon's sermon is wonderful. And it is a very challenging message to people who start with a great rush of enthusiasm as Christians and quickly lose their fire. But whether Spurgeon was right in saying Mark was the man who followed the Lord and was clothed in only a shroud or a sheet, well, that's, I think, doubtful. There are many, many suggestions from the world of exegesis as to who this young man may have been, but we're simply not told. One guess 
is that it was the owner of that little garden of Gethsemane whose house would have been nearby. And it was he who jumped out of bed, covered himself and followed the Lord. A slightly better guess, I think, was that it wasn't him, but it was his son, his young grown-up son, who leapt out of bed and followed the Lord. You just don't know who it is, but I'll tell you what I think is probably the fairest application. I rather think, but I can't be certain, that this is recorded partly as a view of faith that has tenacity. The disciples were overcome by fear. I'm sure we all would have been. And they fled. But there was one young man somewhere between the age of 18 and 30 who stuck it out even longer, who stayed on post, identifying with the Lord, looking out for him, ready to be with him until the moment the soldiers got hold of him. And then I don't think he buckled. He was just wise. This is certain death. They've got hold of me. I'm going to die. And it would have been certain death if he'd been tried with Christ. And he wrenched himself free and ran off into the night. But I think this is a glimpse, whoever it was, of the tenacity of faith. Right up until death was staring him in the face, he held on. But why is it recorded? Well, it shows what would have happened to all the disciples had they stayed. It was to their shame that they forsook him and fled. But this was the degree of violence that was coming if they had not fled. This was the degree of hatred and violence that was exhibited in that garden. And it's recorded also because Christ must go to Calvary alone. Only he could atone for sin. It must be a singular work. Only he could bear the guilt of the sin of all who would be redeemed in the history of the world and sustain that eternal weight of punishment on their behalf. He had to do it entirely alone. And we see him left alone by this act. And verse 53, they led Jesus away to the high priest and another time we can look at those events and exactly what took place. Well, it's the arrest of the Lord. The creator of the world allows himself to be arrested. But we've looked at some of the subsidiary pictures. The nominal believer there in Judas. The bitter enemies who were determined by violence to arrest him. And one glorious glimpse of the tenacity 
which trust in Christ can have when we're saved. The young man who stayed as long as he possibly dared. 